week of February 21st, 2021, this is Showbiz Sandbox episode 530, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And in Cancun, I'm Michael Giltz. <laughs> okay, two seconds ago, before we started, you said to me, no Ted Cruz jokes. And well, you, may- you start with a Ted Cruz joke. I got you, baby. Sperling is a born borscht belt comic. He loves making bad borscht belt jokes. And he made one. I'm like, oh, <laughs> he's, hey, hey, you're just, that's your, your would be career, stand up comic. But what a shame it's not happening. But Sperling, you know, people don't realize we have video here. And I have to say, you look, you look, you've got tears streaming down your face. You look sad. What's going on? Well, uh, one, I, I can't make any Ted Cruz jokes. And for those who don't know, Ted Cruz is a politician here in the U.S. Who fell into Google him? He fell into oh, a little trouble last I, week. I know why you're sad. Are you sad because Daft Punk broke up? Okay, actually, that is really why I was crying. Not about the Ted Cruz. Yes, I, I am sad. I now I'll never get to see them live. Although technically, if you see them live, are you really seeing them? It could be anybody in those costumes. <laughs> and speaking of seeing things live, there are gardeners walking back and forth behind your window as we do the show. If there's a low humming that people hear. That will be the reason the gardeners are trimming his hedges, which is not a not a uh, not a euphemism. Sperling, <laughs> I, hope, oh I hope not. <laughs> so while I'm an, I'm a Borscht Belt comic, you're like a an HBO comic. Is that it? That's a right. Yeah, exactly, comic. exactly. A hustler comic. I know why I'm crying though. It's because I don't have 5G fully in my area or a 5G capable phone. I just saw a report that in the UK they're rolling out 5G. And speeds are up to five times as fast as what people were getting before. I assume those are download speeds. So we're talking, you know, 3G to 5G is not two more Gs. It's like five times as good. So that's fascinating to hear. I haven't heard any reports on that, but that's real world numbers that we're looking at. You know, here's the thing. Everybody's talking about net neutrality. Okay, they're not talking about it anymore since the last presidential administration kind of killed it off thanks to the FCC. Uh, but that said, one way to avoid all of it is competition. And we can't have competition with landlines and wireline, but you know where we can have competition? In where? mobile, wireless. So if wireless can meet or exceed wireline speeds and reliability, then we already have competition in wireless carriers, so we could just hopscotch right over net neutrality, not have to worry about wireline anymore. I'm not sure what you mean. So if I'm going to get my Wi-Fi for my home from a wireless carrier rather than through a cable operator? Correct. It'll Is be that, just, people, isn't that too expensive so far? I don't know. Any, so, I don't. Mm, yes, right now it is, but uh, give it five years. Yeah. And so instead of saying I'll pay $60 a month for my just for my Wi-Fi. My nephew by the way just moved into his first uh, loft. He's purchased a loft in downtown Birmingham, Alabama. So that's very exciting. He's never owned cable. Never. He's added other places that he's rented. Never had cable. Always gone over the top with some streaming services. He may add a bundle over the top, maybe YouTube or Hulu he's thinking about, but he certainly has Wi-Fi coming from, you know, the the uh, the, uh, the cable, cable operator. So he has to get that Wi-Fi from them. So if he had more options, it's basically the only option he has. So if he had and could say, hey, maybe I should go to Verizon. Maybe I should go to AT&T. Maybe I should go to Sprint that would, or T-Mobile. That would give him more competition. He certainly doesn't have that right now. No, but then when he does, then the cable operator might go, yeah, maybe we'll lift caps. And we'll improve our service and, right. and exactly. lower our price. Well, there's competition in the wireless world. There's competition in podcasts. We got a lot of people out there, competitors. We'll be naming some of them late in the show. But so we got to be up on our game. What are we going to talk about this week? Well, I know we kind of got derailed there at the head of the show. But this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we've got great news at the box office. China set new records for a New Year's holiday, the Lunar New Year, proving that fans do want to return to the movies As soon as they can, Hollywood is rejoicing, even if the North American box office is still six months away from getting back to normal. And by the way, it's at least six months away from getting back to normal. On the other hand, award season is getting closer and closer, and we've got news on nominations from the Writers Guild of America. Finally, do we have all of them in, or are they still dripping them out? We'll find out. No, no, I think they're all in. Okay, well, at least this year's uh, writers, by the way, think about it. They'll be able to thank their agents. 
because last year they couldn't remember they were they had fired all their agents mm-hmm that's yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. On Inside Baseball, we take a quick look at Spotify, which had an earnings call and announced a slew of new initiatives. Apparently, they want to dominate and rule the world. What does that mean for the audio streaming wars? Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. Remember, we're, we cover weeks, not weekends. That's right. We're covering the last seven days of box office for the week ending February 21st. We pull information from the entgroup.com. That's where we get some China box office news. And then, of course, the trades and everywhere else we can. We do the math, pull it all together. We look at the current totals of a movie. We subtract it from the total worldwide gross from last week. And that's where we come up with our information. So sometimes we're catching smaller markets that we won't get reports on, but they're they're thrown into that pot for the total worldwide gross, and that's how we make sure we cover as much information from as many parts of the world. Nonetheless, there is confusion sometimes. There's a bit of a disconnect here. Entgroup.China uh, uh, has some bigger grosses for our big movies in China. Hi, Mom, and Detective Chinatown 3. When we look at Wikipedia, which has pretty good updated information on worldwide grosses, and the numbers and other sites, we have a slightly lower gross. We're going to go with the biggest gross that we have because we're assuming that covers more territories and pulls in more information. So as far as we know right now, the number one movie around the world is Hi Mom. This movie really took fire. When the Chinese New Year began, the big, big movie was Detective Chinatown 3, a massive opening week. Hi Mom did really, really well, and it also got much better reviews and much better word of mouth. Even by Sunday and Monday of the new Chinese New Year, we saw that Hi Mom was pulling into first place and really accelerating. Well, that sure is the story this week. Hi Mom is the number one movie around the world. It grossed $511 million this week. So those are big days during the week in China. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Everybody's off all week long. Another reason why the movies did so well, it was a holiday, but people were discouraged from traveling. Normally, people would do a great migration, really. No, It's the biggest migration of people in the world for a particular time. Hundreds of millions of people travel home. But that means they're going off into a smaller town because usually the work is in big cities. So they're going to smaller towns with fewer movie theaters and they're spending a day or two traveling. So because they stayed in place and normally stayed in place in big cities, that meant they were around the big multiplexes. They had extra days on their hand when they weren't traveling and said, I've got an extra two, three, four days. I'm going to the movies. So Hi Mom was the big winner here. $511 million this week. Detective Chinatown 3, in contrast, made $264 million this week. That's still a ton of money. But that makes Hi Mom the top grossing Chinese film of all time by a female director, Jia Ling. So that's great news for her. The top two movies, according to Ant Group, Hi Mom is at number one grosses with $670.9 million. Right behind that, and I do mean right behind, is Detective Chinatown 3 with $670.8 million. <laughs> but that's going to take off in the next week or two because Hi Mom is really on fire. You know, so a couple things to point out. One, I think all Chinese theaters are at 75% capacity or lower, except in certain cities where they are at 50% capacity or lower. So they're doing that kind of with one or two fingers tied behind their back. Uh, Mm -hmm. And and, uh, in Australia, the top four movies in Australia are all homegrown Australian movies, except Mm -hmm. for the fifth movie, Detective Chinatown 3. Interesting. My friends in Singapore, it was playing there, of course, in Singapore. It's in other Asian markets. And that's right. where I think the disconnect uh, is coming, though. Though, you know, it's hard to figure out where all this box office is coming from. Another reason why they made so much money, ticket prices were jacked up. I think it was like a holiday thing and they knew they had a captive audience. Everybody was desperate to go back to the movies. According to one report, the ticket prices in Shanghai at the major cinemas were up to 250 yuan. That's in US dollars. Uh, Or if you really bargain hunted and looked around and went to a smaller theater and less less convenient location, you could get it down to 61 or $9.29 in US terms. So $9 is what we're sort of used to paying, $9 to $10 average. $23, that feels like an IMAX movie on a big screen when you really want to splurge. But this is just what people were paying to see Hi Mom. So ticket prices were really big. 
And you know what? Exhibitors don't do that. <laughs> don't charge people through the roof to go see a movie. Not a great idea to fluctuate those prices. You want to get people in the habit of going all the time. And if tickets are so expensive, they'll say, I'll save that for the holidays. That means you've got 10 months a year where people don't go to the movies. Well, not only that, think about the, mm -hmm. the person who goes just uh, for the holidays and goes, oh, is that how much movies cost now? Right, exactly. And then, so like then in April or May or June, they go, I don't want to go. It's $23, to $23 or $251. I don't want to do that. But in reality, well, no, not anymore. Now, now it's back down to $11. Well, you only went the one time. How would you know? Yeah. So going back to the chart, we have some more records to talk about. But first, Hi Mom made $511 million last week. Detective Chinatown 3 made $264 million. The third film on our chart is A Writer's Odyssey, an action fantasy film in China. That made $73 million. That's at $120 million and counting. Boonie Bears, The Wildlife, that had a really strong daytime and weekday grosses. $51 million it made this week. It's at $84 million. Endgame, the Andy Lau thriller, that had a pretty good full week. It made $34 million after a sort of a weak $12 million opening weekend. It's at $46 million and counting. And The Hollywood Reporter says it's well-reviewed. I'm not quite sure why it fell flat on its face to a degree, but they say it's good. Uh, right below that how, is- How interesting would it be if it, if it fell flat on its face? Because- Actually, the reason, uh, you, you know, there were just too many movies out at that time. You know, people couldn't go and see all of them. Kind of like the problems we sometimes have here in North America and in Western Europe. Well, this is the week when you want to release four or five big movies. I, I think there's pretty good counter-programming. Hi, Mom. Detective Chinatown 3 is lighter. I assume Endgame is more of a straight thriller, a kid's film, uh, an animated movie. I feel like it's a good mix. So I don't think that they made a huge problem in terms of counter-programming. You can always second-guess yourself, but I don't think that's the problem with the movie. But if you're in China and you know, tell us. Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can call and uh, leave us a voicemail, 888-567-SAND. That is 888-567-7263. We're, we're also on Twitter, at showbizsandbox is our handle. And we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox. I haven't tried to Ooh. access us from Australia to see whether we've been blocked in Australia or not by Facebook. Ooh, oh, that would be, oh, yeah. <laughs> Tell us. Ted, call, try to go to our Facebook page, uh, Australia, and let us know if we're still up. Good to know. Uh, Endgame made about $34 million. So did the animated film New Gods, Nodra Reborn. That made $34 million this week. It's at $54 million and counting. The Yin Yang Masters, which has been acquired by Netflix, so we'll be able to see that in North America pretty soon. That made another $15 million. It's the one film I see that's significantly slowing down. That made about $40 million so far. And then way down on the list, we've got a few North American movies. The Crudes, A New Age, that passed $50 million in the U.S. and $150 million worldwide. The Denzel Washington flick, The Little Things, that's at $20 million worldwide. That's pretty good. And Judas and the Black Messiah, that made $1 million. That's at $3.4 million and counting. Good numbers for an art house film, especially one that's available online for people to watch. And then Robin Wright's directorial debut, Land, that had a good second week. That made another half a million dollars. It's at $1.6 million and counting. Those are good numbers when you're looking at a small art house film, though that one is on quite a few screens. And speaking of screens, the live-action animated hybrid Tom and Jerry is the first non-Chinese film that will be opening up since the new year. That will be opening up right away on February 26th. But we mentioned some records. China had the record single-day gross in one market for all the movies. In one day, they grossed $263 million. A record three-day weekend, Friday through Sunday, the biggest of all time in China, and I think perhaps the world, but I'm not sure about that. They grossed $775 million from Friday through Sunday. No Thursday night money tossed in there. That's a pure three-day gross. They had a record Chinese New Year gross last year. I mean, 2019, they made about $900 million during the holiday week. That's almost 10% of their entire year's $9 billion box office. This year in 2021, they brought in not $900 million, but $1.2 billion. That's a good 30% increase. That's a big jump. They've also had about a 9% increase in screen count to 75,000 screens in China. You got more screens, you got more chances to make a lot of money. There's good news out of the UK though, isn't there? Yes. Well, supposedly uh, May 17th is the date that cinemas will reopen. 
not tentatively. Tentatively, yeah, yeah, not not totally confirmed yet, and you know we'll see if that that date holds. Hopefully, it will. Uh, but I think they're beginning to look at the the spring and the summer, and and the government realizes that you have to start opening some of these businesses up earlier than the summer if they're going to do any business during the summer, which is very true. Well, one movie is not on our list, and that is Nomadland. That movie expanded to 1,100 screens. It comes from Searchlight, a division of Disney, because Disney bought up a bunch of uh, properties owned by 20th Century Fox. So they're now the owners of Searchlight. But it was Searchlight's decision not to release gross screen gross information. So I think it's a big mistake, Sperling. I, you know, this movie wants to be an Oscar hopeful, and I, I know that the news is always going to have an asterisk by it because we're in weird times. But do you think they gain anything by hiding the numbers? No, I, I don't think they gain anything. I think they don't want to um, upset exhibitors because remember this was this open day and date on Hulu and in movie theaters. So I don't think they want to uh, really broadcast out whether it's working or not to a other distributors but we wouldn't we wouldn't we wouldn't know the hulu and 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 we wouldn't know the online information anyway all we would see is the box office grosses right but if the box office grosses would actually uh signal uh some information some intelligence to other distributors not exhibitors not movie theater owners but to distributors themselves so they're not only mm -hmm. they're not only uh kind of blocking it from the press, which is what Pamela McClintock's story in The Hollywood Reporter, which is what you're referencing there, uh, is kind of highlighting, but they're also blocking it from other distributors. So if you're Sony or you're Paramount, you don't know what what well, Nomadland did. That's the main thing that they're talking about here, right? Warner Brothers and Sony are really holding things close to the vest. On Sunday, they release information Correct. to the media. But they don't want people to be able to see day in and day out what it's making, what the big screen count is. That's what everybody's had an open book for years now. And you can go to Comscore if you're paying the money, and you can see what's right. doing what where. And that's the information they don't want to get out anymore. But they're also not even releasing the Sunday info. They're not even telling us that it grossed half a million dollars, which is what we believe happened. Yes, and I don't believe, by the way, that would put it on your list for this week. Right. Okay. Oh, well, sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I... I uh I would agree with you. I, I don't think they're even going to release that information. Usually they'll do it when there's uh, the studio reported, what they call the actuals, come Sundays. out on Monday. Or Monday, no, yeah. On Monday, yeah. I'll get an email around about 1 o'clock today on Monday, and it will have the actuals, the, the, what actually is being mm -hmm. reported to the studios. Well, and Universal and Disney and Paramount continue to be forthcoming. Searchlight's decision was its own. Warner Brothers and Sony are releasing information when they want to the press, but there's a lot of blank spaces on our on our movie box office right now. And if you're trying to promote a movie, I just don't think it's a good idea. I don't think I don't think anybody gains anything by hiding information. Well, you said what Nomad Land was on a uh, hundred and or eleven hundred screens, and it made five hundred thousand dollars. Well, that's that's we're, we're not sure, but th I, I think somebody said that that's what it might have grossed if it come out. But I might be conflating that with Land, which did make half a million dollars. No, I think. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. If I'm not mistaken, uh, okay. I saw that in in the piece as well. But then you also, I guess, think about it this way: you've got uh, you you've got another film, The Mauritanian, which was released mm -hmm. by STX, and that movie. And I'm just trying to pull it up here. I think it also made a hundred and forty five thousand dollars. Now you think, well, that's not why are you trying to yep. equate those yep. one hundred thirty five thousand dollars this weekend, but it's only on like a hundred screens, not even. We really no, two, made that much. Two hundred, sorry, two hundred eighty-seven select theaters. It made one hundred thirty-five thousand dollars. So when you think about it, there's such a huge gap between two hundred eighty-seven screens and eleven hundred screens, and yet there's not. It doesn't seem like there's that much of a gap between one hundred thirty-five thousand dollars and five hundred thousand. Yeah, but we are. We're all. We know. We understand it. Some are available online. Some are. You know, they could be purchased or bought or rented or screened. And uh, you know, we understand this. Everything's going to have an asterisk. But hiding info doesn't help you. You know, people are not talking about your movie. They can always put everything in context and say, we don't know. It could be the biggest number one movie on, on streaming right now. You know, True. we don't know. You know, uh, I saw a movie called Crisis this past week. It's the uh -huh. movie starring Gary Oldman, Army Hammer, and Evangeline Lilly. It opens February 26th from Quiver Distribution. I'm wondering, will they give, you know, they're a smaller distributor. And I noticed that STX was very quick yesterday, 9.16 a.m., 
they sent an email with their their numbers. I'm wondering if Quiver will do the same. You know, Gary Oldman, he's a big star. Well, they they only benefit from the reporting and the information. People know the movie is out. But if they only do it when they like the numbers, that's also a problem. So we'll have to keep an eye on that. But Nomadland is one of the Oscar hopefuls, and it got some good news this week, didn't it, from the WGA? No, it didn't. No, it didn't. I beg your pardon. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, here's the interesting thing about about, uh, Nomadland. I, this past week, had kept CNN on in the background a couple days. They advertised Nomadland, appearing on Hulu, by the way. And in, by the way, some select theaters, you know, they would very quietly mention at the end of oh, some select, but it was a Hulu ad effectively. Well, sure. Every commercial break, they would have a, an ad for Nomadland. Man, was, but I love that information. <laughs> love to know what it's doing. So there are, are there are nominees for the WGAs. Uh, these are coming out the week before the Golden Globes are announced on Sunday, February 28th. We'll have the Golden Globes. So it's all part of that momentum towards Oscar season. Uh, but you won't hear about First Cow or Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. Those were not included in the nominees. Other movies simply weren't eligible. That includes Minari, Nomadland, The Father, uh, so those movies are simply not eligible for the WGA for various reasons. The biggest news, I think, came in docs. But what were the uh, nominees for Best Original Screenplay? Best Original Screenplay was Judas and the Black Messiah, although based on a true story. So uh, Palm Springs, which is interesting. Promising Young Woman. Sound I've heard metal. nothing but good. I've heard nothing but good things about Carrie Mulligan in that movie. Uh, Promising Young Woman. Yeah. Heard she's yes. just terrific. Uh, Sound of Metal was uh, also uh, Riz Ahmed, uh, hearing mm-hmm. great things about him. And The Trial of the Chicago 7, which also is kind of based on a true story. It doesn't mean, yeah. just because it's an original screenplay, it just means it's not adapted on a previous book or play or I news know, article. I know. Right, yeah, right. I know. This adapted screenplay, Borat's subsequent movie film. I don't know how that's an adaptation. Well, <laughs> it's an adaptation Rainey's, of the. Because of the, uh, it's a sequel. Yeah. So all sequels are adaptations? No, I don't know why that's an adaptation. No, it's like, as I was saying, it was based on a sequel or based on a, an original film. I don't know why that's an adapted screenplay. That's a good question. That's a very good question. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, great, good play. News of the World, One Night in Miami, and The White Tiger. Uh, so some of those are not expected, I think, on an Oscar list. I don't, I don't expect White Tiger or News of the World. I'm surprised by that a little bit. That seems to have been fading fast, but you know, we'll see. I certainly can expect a Borat subsequent movie film screenplay or Best Supporting Actress. Those seem like the two areas where that movie might click. But documentary, that's where the WGA made some news. Four of the docs are not on the Oscar shortlist. Four of them. Those include The Dissident, Herb Alpert Is, Red Penguins, and Totally Under Control. The only documentary that is on the WGA shortlist and on the Oscar shortlist is the Stacey Abrams flick, All In, The Fight for Democracy. So does that make that a real powerhouse, like a front runner for the Oscar? It certainly helps. You know, it can't hurt, that's for sure. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe because Stacey Abrams uh, is getting so much credit for turning Georgia blue, and by that I mean politically blue. So maybe mm-hmm. that wins because it's timely. But the dissident is a is a well, that's un- not eligible for the Oscar. I know, uh, right? These the, are all. Uh, I'm not saying they aren't good movies. I'm just saying All In being the only one that's on the WGA shortlist has to give it a big boost in terms yes. of Oscar. Oh, absolutely, right? because people yeah. will actually go see it. Now, here's the thing: I had no idea Herb Alpert is, and I'm a you know, I'm a trumpet player. I, I, Herb Albert, I got to go see this movie. And this is what awards do. They make me, they make me go out, go out and first of all, discover movies. And secondly, actually want to see them. What did you not know about Herb Alper? That that movie was made. Oh, you just didn't know. You knew he was a trumpet player. Oh, absolutely. That's why oh, I want to okay. see You movie. just said, oh, 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 okay. I thought you like, I, I thought you maybe only knew him as a record label guy or something or yeah. No, okay. No, no, Got, no. Gotcha. 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 No, I, sh- well, I should have looked this up. First cow, never rarely, sometimes always Minari. No, no, no. Those, those first, the first, no, no. First cow and never rarely simply didn't get nominated. Ah, okay. What about those Minari didn't make the cut? Uh, well, it depends on the, the writer, the person not being a member of the WGA or who uh, knows what. So Chloe okay. Zhao may not be on, on in, in the WGA shortlist. I don't know. Okay, that makes yeah. sense. But, you know, I do know that there's lots of stuff to watch on streaming. We're amidst the streaming wars, and we've got a link to all the charts. They break them down by best 
uh, original series, best uh, best pickup series, you know, like The Office and stuff like that, and best movies. And they've got charts for all of them. But we combine that into one chart that has a top 10 for the most popular properties from the previous week. So if you're looking at a movie and it makes the top 10, that's a huge accomplishment because he's competing with something like The Office, which has 100 plus episodes for people to watch. It's a lot harder to rack up points when you've only got a 90 minute movie. We've got a top 10 list and you're going to look at Netflix being in all 10 of them. Netflix has every single slot this week, beginning with Bridgerton at the top and Cobra Kai all the way down to LA's finest. So Netflix, Netflix, Netflix. That means those other services that bitch and moan and say, hey, Nielsen, you're not including HBO Max. You're not including this or that. Work with them. Get Let them verify your numbers, and then you can be in the mix too. We know they are not capturing every single minute of every single bit of viewing. Hey, work with them on that and try and solve that problem as well because you'll benefit when people have that information of popular shows. It's always good for everyone. But we do know some good news about HBO Max, don't we? Uh, what, that they had their most watched miniseries ever? Is that what you're yeah, talking that's right. about? That's right. I haven't seen this yet. Have you seen The Undoing with Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant? No, in fact, I haven't seen Big Little Lies. I did read the book, and I do remember really liking the book and plowing through it, and it was kind of like a murder mystery type thing, and I can't remember. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is with me, but I cannot remember the plots of books. I do not know why. I have no idea why. some guy and a whale or something. Yeah, no, that's okay. You can enjoy it while it's there, and then you get the pleasure of watching the movie and going, what's going to happen next? (laughs) Yeah, because I can't remember. But The Undoing stars Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant, uh, and its ratings, its numbers topped both seasons of Big Little Lies, making it its most watched miniseries, 12.3 million viewers for every episode. Yeah, I'm not sure how they distinguish between Big Little Lies, which was a miniseries, but then got a sequel. So now it's sort of two miniseries or almost a series, especially if there's a third season. But anyway, every episode, it looks like, has hit at least 12.3 million viewers. That's what I understood from the numbers. It was a little confusing, but I do know this. It's the first series in HBO history to grow viewership every single night. Season episode one, and then episode two was bigger, then three was bigger, then four, all the way up to the season finale or the series finale because it's a mini series. So that's interesting. I have to say that the finale on November 29th, that drew 3 million viewers overnight on all platforms. These numbers that we have now are 10 weeks later. That tells you why you want to wait four weeks, five, you got to wait for all the info to come in. You know, you had December and January, it's mid-February, late February. Now we've got all the numbers and you can say, wow, people are still talking about the undoing. They're still watching it. And those overnight numbers, 3 million, they're good. They can explain why. That's nowhere near 12.3 million for that finale. So that's just great news. And that's why we got to wait. I've got a solution for TV viewing and how we can talk about those numbers, but that'll have to wait for some other day. But what do we say? Do we say HBO Max? Do we say HBO? It's a pain in the neck to me. I feel like we should just say HBO Max, whether you're watching it. It is HBO Max now. Jason Kalar came in and said, I don't get it. HBO Go, HBO Now, HBO. You know what? We're going to HBO Max. That's it. HBO Max it is. And that's what it wound up being. HBO Max. No, no, I mean, but also there's basic HBO where like a new season of Game of Thrones would go, wouldn't necessarily be on HBO Max. Do we have to distinguish between HBO and everything on HBO is available on HBO Max. So my feeling is just say HBO Max to heck with it. Yeah, I I agree. Yeah. So, but we do know that Disney Plus, we can say that number two, right? They've been raising their fees, right? One of the things that Netflix says is, hey, we get like twice as much money, even actually two and a half times as much money per subscriber as Disney Plus. So it's nice that they're slowly catching up, but they're nowhere near us in terms of revenue. And that's why Disney's raising their subscription fee, aren't they? Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's this app called Clubhouse that I've been on for a while. And uh, are oh, you, you on poor this? man. <laughs> no. Okay. So it's the bit, it's hard to explain what it is, but it's basically like. No, it's uh, not party rooms it's like audio party rooms you know like those 976 numbers back in the 80s and 90s where you dial in and everybody was talking on a conference call same thing but you're using your phone and it's on an app and you're doing it like industry like going into a room with people who are in film exhibition or you're going to a room with people who love knitting or whatever it might be and they can call you up on stage and you can raise your hand and ask a question but that said i was in a room called the streaming wars over the past week and i saw rich greenfield was in it and he remember he used to be with 
Uh, I think he's with Light Shed Partners now and used to be uh, with BTIG Research. But basically, he's an industry analyst. And he was talking about uh, why Netflix and Disney will have to eventually raise their prices. With Netflix, it's because, hey, uh, you know what? There's no more there's no way for them to grow quarter to quarter or even year to year without raising prices in certain territories. And also Disney, you know, that content costs money and they were, they came in at a low price to try and, you know, ramp up their, their subscriber base. But at some point they're going to have to go to a nine, $10 fee like everybody else. Well, they don't have to. They could be happy with an $8 fee or a $7 fee. It just depends on, and they won't do that in every part of the world. Correct. But yeah, they wanna they they brought in a low, low number to say we gotta catch up with Netflix. We're gonna have great stuff right off the bat. And it's gonna be this juicy catalog of, you know, all the Marvel movies, all the Star Wars movies, and all the classic Disney family friendly content. And we're gonna pull people in with a cheap price and then we'll slowly raise it and people will find as the original content is is there that they're happy. They're willing to stick with it. They're not gonna go to twenty dollars, they're not gonna go to fifteen like HBO Max anytime soon. But it's working. So what did they do? In the UK, they raised their fee two pounds to eight pounds. And in Europe, they raised another two euros to about nine euros. So it's eight pounds in the UK, nine euros in the rest of Europe, because the United Kingdom is a European country. I don't care if they're not in the EU. And that's going to just keep on going. But in India, they're not raising it there anytime soon. They're still attacking on a lot of people. Yeah, well, and of course, HBO Max. Uh, and I know we're not talking about HBO Max anymore. They they uh, will be they're launching- premium. Yeah, they're premium, and they are launching in the in Latin America uh, later this year. I think in in April or May or maybe June. And then, of course, you have Paramount Plus coming on the scene. So by the time we're done, and I'm just adding everything up here, so I pay 160 dollars in cable now. Right. And then, so now I'm gonna I'm gonna owe 300 dollars in streaming fees. <laughs> well, that's my, a, my internet bill. That's a big bill, and yeah. it's a big deal, isn't it? Oh my goodness, I did not see that coming actually. Uh, yes, I guess it is a big deal, which means it is time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our patented weekly Ooh. segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. It's not really Is it patented? patented? I feel like no. we're on Shark Tank suddenly. That's yeah, great. No. You got a patent for that? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. My offer just declined. Yeah. Uh, so here's the thing. Our first story, the pandemic isn't over, in case you, you hadn't noticed. Well, neither, by the way, is the explosive growth for streamers. Roku beat Wall Street expectations and had good news from every segment of its business. The company added 14 million active users in 2020, hitting a total of 51 million active accounts, by the way. I am one of them. Revenue was up almost 60% to $650 million for the quarter. Roku's stock is up 300% for 2020 and up 31% in 2021 alone. Plus, it finally made nice with HBO Max and wasted some money buying up the leftovers from Quibi. So is this a big deal or a big whoop? It's neither, I'd say. It's just, you know, it's expected news. Right now, we're just in such a flourishing time for streaming. Everybody is rethinking their TV package. They want TV. They love TV. They're going to spend a lot of money on TV, but they're changing their priorities from a big, fat cable package to maybe over the air, adding in some streaming, or at least supplementing their cable package with all these streamers because all their friends are talking about all the cool stuff they're watching. Uh, one interesting detail is that Roku says its analysis shows sports fans who are using the Roku system. They've returned to watching sports as reports have returned, but not as much as they did before. They've got in more of a mix of film and TV. So there was like a year, eight months, where there was almost no sports or a lot of sports was delayed. And some of those people didn't come back, or at least not as strongly as they did before. Maybe they watched 30 hours of sports a week, and now they're only watching 20. That's a big difference. Yeah, you know, so here's the thing. Roku makes a lot of its money based on advertising. And you might say, well, wait, they, how do they advertise on their channel? Uh, well, no, they make money based on, and this is part of the, the uh, I guess, argument that Peacock had with them when NBC wanted to, you know, put Peacock on Roku. And Roku said, okay, great. Uh, you know, all those ads, we want some of the inventory. So when you stream three ads, we want one of those ads. And Peacock said, yeah, um, um, here's the thing. No. no. And, and eventually had to cave in. And that's how they're getting 
some of their money. Well, Likewise, if if you oh by the way, if you're not streaming ads to them, but somebody's paying you six dollars a month, if they sign up and use it via through Roku, us, yeah, yeah, then we want you know a monthly fee for that. Can you sign up separately, or do they force yes. you to sign up via them the way iTunes did? Nope. No, nope. you can't okay. sign up separately. Okay, good to know. So, but you know, streaming is where it's at. In fact, uh, the BBC knows that. You know how I know? Mm-hmm. Oh. Well, the BBC is launching a new streaming service. That's that's how I know. Uh, but don't worry, by the way, if you subscribe to BritBox, the collaboration between the BBC and ITV. You know, if you subscribe, don't worry. This is an entirely different service. BBC Select will draw on the notification notification. No, the non-fiction programming of the UK news outlets, including original documentaries, nature shows, and more. It costs $5 a month in the US and includes new docs like The Rise of the Murdoch Dynasty and stuff hosted by Louis Thoreau. Now, if you're in the UK, think of BBC Select as, I don't know, BBC Four for the rest of the world. So is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, first of all, I'd be more inclined to watch that documentary if it was retitled The Rise and Fall of the Murdoch Dynasty, but I, I guess that's not <laughs> happening yet. Oh, well. Um, anyway, uh, my first thought was a big whoop, and why are they spreading this out so much? You know, you've got you've got BritBox. They have 1.5 million subscribers in North America. I'm surprised that's it. I would have thought there'd be more people subscribing to BritBox because of that but I guess that hardcore Anglophilia people is not as big as I thought. Um, but they've got all those different services you talk about. And I thought, really? And they want one for just nonfiction? Is there really somebody say, oh, wait, Discovery and Discovery Plus. Discovery launched like six weeks ago, Discovery Plus. It's direct to consumers filled right. with reality and nonfiction programming. Stuff like, you know, Flea Market Flip and and all these home improvement and real estate shows and all cooking, whatever, all these Discovery Plus stuff. And I thought, really? Well, they've hit 11 million paid direct subscribers. Most of them added in the US. They added 7 million in the most recent quarter. It costs about 5 to $7. It also includes some subscribers to niche programming like a golf streamer and a food and European sports and stuff like that. But you add it all up. Most of it comes from Discovery Plus. Most of the new subscribers are in North America and they signed up for nonfiction programming. So, you know, BBC, maybe they know something I don't. There are a lot of people who love that type of programming and they're willing to pay for it. So it's going to be a bigger hit than I thought, perhaps. You know, I'm just thinking, I think I have a, you know, a business model or a business idea for maybe Roku. Okay? Don't keep it to yourself because you've been keeping it to yourself all your life, baby. <laughs> okay. Well, here's what I would do if I were them. I would like get all of these services, Disney Plus, Peacock, HBO ah, Max, that joke. Ah. you know, and, and I would just maybe put them all in like, you know what? If you get them through me, Roku, I'll like bundle them together. It'll be cheaper. You know, instead of $5, it'll be $4 for that. Well, for that's that the promise channel. you made. And yet, once you did it, you became greedy and added 500 channels and stuff I did, really didn't want. And a lot of services with a high price. And I felt like I was getting ripped off. And you provided crappy service. And that's why people walked away from cable. Oh, cable does that? Yeah. Oh. Okay, yeah. well, you Keep know, going. speaking speaking of uh, things that are oh, coming nice. back. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of what? Anyway, uh, director Brett Ratner, remember him? He's back mm-hmm. in action, Ooh. okay? And not with Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker. He hasn't directed a feature film since Hercules in 2014 with Dwayne Johnson, which, to be honest, I had totally forgotten even existed. Ratner hasn't directed a hit in about 20 years. See, uh, Rush Hour, I think, was, was one of Rush his- Rush Hour 2 and Red Dragon. Yeah, okay. Those so- were in 2020, 2021. 2020, 2020 was last year. I mean, I mean, I mean, 2000, 2001. Those were his last movies that were pretty unqualified hits. Some came close, but those were clear hits at the box office alone. Well, he's got a new idea. Okay. So Mm -hmm. just stay with me here because I think this is going to be a huge hit. He's back with a biopic about Millie Vanilli, baby. By the way, that will be an adapted screenplay. Okay. Definitely not original. Why? It, unless it's based on behind the music by VH1 or a news article or a bio one okay, of them wrote, why, the it could ju- be original. 
the joke was that it Millie Vanilli. It was a Millie Vanilli joke, okay? It was a Millie Vanilli. Maybe, well, joke. maybe you want to say it'll be ghost written. Maybe that's what you mean. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Okay, keep going, keep going. Well, well, uh, here's my question. Was it his string of flops that you were just referencing, Michael, that put Ratner on the do not disturb list? You know, not really. It was the seven women who came forward in 2017 and described Ratner's sexual misconduct and harassment that caused Warner Brothers to cut ties with him. Since then, Ratner went on an apology tour. He engaged in therapy, donated money to women's causes, and tried hard to become... Wait, no, wait, no, that, that's not it at all. Oh, right, he sued the women and then went away and hoped that four years is enough time for everyone to forgive, or at least forget. Yeah, the group Time's Up has done neither of those things and released a public statement pointing out his behavior has done nothing to deserve forgiving or forgetting. Big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a big whoop. First of all, Millie Vanilli? Now, I, I, can, I can see a movie, a comic film being made out of their crazy story. You know, these two guys who wanted to be, they're poor, desperately poor, and they just want to be stars. And this guy takes them and they can't sing at all. But for some reason, he keeps them as his front duo and gets studio singers to pump up the vocals. They don't even sing on their debut album. And they win the Grammy for Best New Artist. And they got to give the, you know, I can imagine some sort of black comedy being created out of that. I don't think Brett Ratner is necessarily the person to be the director to guide that vision. The stuff he's done doesn't say, you know, cynical black humor, uh, sort of whatever we're looking at thing here. I, I don't see his sensibility making any sense of Millie Vanilli at all. Uh, but of course, he hasn't really ever made a good movie. So, you know, why, why nitpick? Well, I, in my mind, maybe Rush Hour was okay. It had, you know, I thought, I thought uh, you know, a little overpraised, but still was amiable amiable i think that's the best phrase for that but he did make money for people once upon a time it's been a while and you know what hollywood's ready to forgive and forget if they can make money off of you but if they can't make money off of you and people are going to give them grief for and they may lose some other business they're not going to be so eager so he's making this with a small company unless he can somehow get it out there make a really good movie or at least make money on it I don't think it's going to make a difference for him. You know, the rest of Hollywood, I don't think, why bother? He hasn't had a hit in 20 years. Why would you risk it? You know, what's interesting is that there is a willingness to say, okay, it's been four years. And guess what? In that four years, you did X, Y, and Z to help redeem yeah, yourself. Yeah, you didn't do anything. Right. Yeah, exactly. That, that there is this because there's, the, you know, everybody's talking about cancel culture these days. I think our last show was about cancel culture. And, uh, you know, at least there seems to be some willingness on- A on, lot well, of willingness. Mel Gibson is working. <laughs> good point. Good point. Touche. Yeah, Woody Allen's making movies. People are always willing to work Although with you. Although maybe, make- maybe not anymore after this past weekend and, and Farrow yeah. versus Allen or Allen well, versus whatever. Yeah. I, I, would, I would buy it more if they had done a better job of trying to pretend to look at the other side or look at, look at a more, you know, these were not challenging. They just presented her side, you know, there was no, uh, which is, you know, that's like Rolling Stone when they did their story on college rape, your empathy immediately goes to the person who says I was raped. You want to listen to them, but you don't do a story in Rolling Stone without speaking to the people at the fraternity to speak to other people. You don't do a one source story. Now this is not a one source documentary, Alan versus Pharaoh, but it comes damn close to it in terms of just simply not even trying to, you know, get any other's take on what the issue is because it seems pretty complex. But oh well, a pox on all their houses, I say. But yeah, Brett Ratner, he might say, "I have nothing to uh, make do. I have nothing to make up for." I'm sure he denied it at the time. Perhaps he still does. I assume he still does. So he might very well say, "Well, what am I supposed to go on an apology tour for? I didn't do anything." But when seven women come forward. Uh, the weight of evidence is so great that I'm sorry. There are not seven different women looking to bring Brett Ratner down. He is a person who has issues and needs to deal with them, and he didn't do it. And Hollywood may try to forget, but not when other people are paying attention. That sounds a little bit uh, insidery to me. Nah, just common sense, but it is time for Inside Baseball, isn't it? What happens in Inside Baseball? Well, uh, there are these four pillows on the ground, and when you hit the ball... Um, <laughs> If you hit it, you you hit it, and then you run to the first pillow, which is off to your to a person's right. And, and then, if you strike out, do you move on to the next joke, or do you just tell us what happens in inside baseball? <laughs> uh well, okay. Well, inside baseball is our segment where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business, and more importantly, how they affect you. 
Yeah, today on Inside Baseball, we're going to look at Spotify because they're having a a uh, earnings call right now and releasing a lot of information. I don't know if we've got the latest info. Have they told us what this new service will cost? There's a hi-fi service coming. But anyway, video streamers are multiplying, and along with it, the need to subscribe to multiple outlets to get everything you want. Hulu, Peacock, HBO Max, Disney, Netflix. All right. That hasn't been the case with music and podcasts. By and large, the major music streamers all offered the same content. They tried every once in a while to do some exclusive, but that just sort of annoyed fans. And if you want to check out a podcast like ours, you can usually find it everywhere that podcasts are offered. No more. Podcast exclusives are driving traffic, and they're only going to grow. Case in point, Spotify. If you want to hear Joe Rogan, you gotta go to Spotify. If you want to hear a new podcast with Barack Obama and Bruce Springsteen sitting together like buddies chatting about stuff, you got to go to Spotify. They're launching a new podcast called Renegades, born in the USA, and they talk about stuff like race and fatherhood and manhood. It's just the two of them, Bruce and Barack, talking. They became friends in 2008 when Springsteen endorsed Obama, and now they're launching a podcast, and Spotify has it exclusively, and they've announced a stream of other stuff. DC Comics, for example, what's going on there? Sorry, I was looking up the Spotify news. Uh, DC <laughs> Comics. Well, they, they, well, why don't you, you know Spotify is, as you mentioned, Michael. They they have a deal with with uh, DC, and the company That's already right. has a bunch of superhero shows happening. Uh, think of them as like radio shows on demand, like the old like in nineteen. You know, history repeats itself. We're all going to be yep. sitting around the Spotify, not the radio, listening to Superman and That's whether right. he can save the day. Uh, and, and by the way, they like what they're seeing uh, with this DC deal. So the number of shows is going to grow on Spotify. Now, DC is committing to original audio series built around, guess what? Superman, Wonder Woman, and the Joker, among others. Uh, here's my question. How does that dance that Joaquin Phoenix did as the Joker translate in audio only? But anyway, uh, those are the crown jewels of, the, of DC, so we'll see what happens. That's right, and that's the DC world. They haven't made a deal with Marvel, though I imagine they'd like to, but they've done the next best thing, Spotify announced a deal with the Russo brothers to create original content podcasts built around storytelling. So again, we're talking about fictional podcasts, not news or the stories of what's happening in the comic book world, but podcasts with stories in them. It's not a deal involving Marvel characters, but the Russo brothers are perhaps, you know, the next best thing since they directed the Avengers movies, including the highest grossing flick of all time. Why? Why is all this happening? Why are they doing all these original podcasts? Well, because they need ads and, and they if, and if you listen to podcasts, you're not listening to Well then you know, every hour that I listen to a podcast, I can't listen to music. And when I listen to wait a second, I just did the math on this. If I'm not listening to music, they're not paying royalties on that music. That's which means right. oh yes, they Fewer probably royalties. Yeah, it's probably cheaper to pay for the podcast. Spotify is still losing money. They're spending a lot of money and yeah. they're losing a lot of money quarter to quarter. They have never been profitable. Uh, they like the trend they're doing in and people let them get away with it. And it. Amazon did it for a long time till they became profitable. Spotify's hoping to pull off the same trick. So they, if they get more podcasts and more people listening to books and audiobooks and podcasts and radio shows, they have to pay out fewer and fewer royalties for all the music listening. It's not. I looked around and I couldn't figure out who owns these podcasts. When they're all said and done, will it be owned by a company between Spotify and DC, or is it owned by DC alone ultimately, or is it owned by Spotify alone? Who get you know you got a hundred episodes of Superman? Ultimately, who's going to be the owner? I couldn't figure that out. I'm imagining it's maybe co-owned or spot. I don't know. I'd love to figure that out. If anybody knows, tell us. But there was some other interesting information. Uh, they say that in 2002 there were about 30,000 albums released in North America. In 2020. There were 1.8 million albums released in the U.S. on Spotify alone. Uh, it was on all the major streamers, but basically it doesn't include stuff that may be on Bandcamp exclusively. But all the albums posted everywhere on all the big streamers, over almost 2 million albums were released in 2020. We could put out an album. It's that easy to do, just like we're putting out a podcast. That's a lot of stuff. And they've said they paid out $5 billion in royalties in 2020. That's one reason they're losing money. They'd like to see that number go down. And they announced a new service. Spotify does offer a higher streaming resolution. So when you download 
music or a podcast. It wouldn't be worth it for our podcast, but for a lot of music, you can choose a higher rate of resolution. So it takes up more space on your phone or your laptop, but it gives you a better quality sound file. Now they're offering hi-fi. They're offering a super audio offering starting later this year. So it's presumably going to be more like Neil Young level quality. You know, it's the quality he <laughs> wants you to have. The quality yeah. he said, well, well, well said. And I, I love the idea. Uh, I just have a small phone with a small um, hard drive. So I need a much bigger phone so I can handle downloading, you know, 50 or 100 albums at a time with that much bigger size. So I'm excited to hear about that. I'm kind of the target audience. I love hi-fi. I do want much better quality for my, even though I'm going to play it through car speakers or just through headphones, I want that better file to start with. So uh, that'll be another interesting offering that they're making. They're not forgetting that most of their audience is listening to music most of the time. Yeah, and okay, so a couple things. Apple does not have a hi-fi service. No pre, no, th this service, the idea is it's going to deliver CD quality or lossless an, a lossless audio format. That's what Neil Young wants, lossless. What you hear in the studio is what you get via streaming. That's his his goal. And that's what that Pono player was. Re remember, he came mm -hmm. out with that. Um, I do indeed. And, and it's led to other people improving their audio quality. So, you know, he had good effect. Right. And Tidal, uh, Tidal Masters does this. Uh, this is the Jay-Z uh, streaming service. And, mm -hmm. and I guess it's also owned by all the, the you know, every artist that's on it. Amazon Music HD has been doing this as well for $15 yeah. per month. And that's so the question is how much, a month. Will, yeah. Yeah, how much will this cost? That's what I want to know. Right. You're spending $10 a month for Spotify, right? Well, I have the family plan at 14, but yes. Right. So yes, how much will it cost for a family plan to bump up the audio quality? We're going to find out later today. We're recording on Monday, but we don't know yet. So we're, we're, we're looking to hear that. If that means the death of you know, as people's phones get bigger and you have bigger hard drives, you don't have to worry about having lower quality. Eventually, hopefully, we'll just all have much better high quality audio files because it's a much better experience. So, you know. Yeah. And then you'll have to decide, do I go with Amazon, which has, you know, this podcast or Spotify, which has the other podcast the exclusives? And, yeah, that's a big yeah. pain. But that's what you do for HBO Max and Peacock and Netflix. So no difference there. I, I kind of love the fact that no matter where I subscribe to, I can hear all the same music. I'd hate if there was exclusive like one record label and someone had to buy all three record labels and an indie label pot. That would be a pain in the neck. I don't want to have to say, oh, but we do it all the time with TV. We do it all the time with movies. It's coming to podcasts, that's for sure. And the MP3, thanks to these new services, these new higher audio, maybe the MP3 is dead. Oh, well, I, I see what you're doing there. You're saying that CDs were no longer going to buy. Oh, wait, you said dead. Okay, so this must mean we're talking about obituaries. And, you know, I was very uh, sad to hear about Johnny Pacheco, actually, who died at the age of 85. Were you, did you know, had you heard of him or did you know him? The salsa band the, leader? Hey, remember that part where I play trumpet? Oh, I forgot. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you're a trumpet player. Yeah, I mean... He had a great career, but he also had a big impact behind the scenes. He co-founded Fania, a record label known as the Motown of Salsa. And that about says it all. Celia Cruz, Hector Laveau, Ruben Blades, they were all on the Fania label. Uh, they launched the Fania All-Stars, a sort of a house band supergroup that sold out Yankee Stadium and released a great live album from that concert. He also recorded 10 albums with label star Celia Cruz, including Celia and Johnny, and producing her last solo effort, which won the Grammy for Best Salsa Album in 2002, Azuka. Yeah, he's a, he's a big figure in salsa, in music, and check out the Fania All-Stars, check out Celia Cruz, check out his solo work. Uh, he did some great stuff. The Silly and Johnny is a really fun album. And uh, I guess also passing away this week, and not surprisingly since he had cancer, was uh, the Congressional Award honoree. <laughs> Congressional course, Medal of Honor. Yeah, uh, honoree. Rush Limbaugh. Of course, I'm making a, a, a slight joke there because he won it last year and people thought, well, why is he, you know, Donald Trump giving him this award for basically being, uh, you know, 30 years of, of, of violent uh, right-wing conspiracy. Well, he, Donald Trump is the, uh, is the pinnacle of what Rush Limbaugh worked for uh, for the last 30 years. He's one of the most influential radio broadcasters in the history of the medium and that is a, true. Key, a key figure in the radicalization of the Republican Party. Before we get to that, there's going to be a big gap in radio. This guy still drew 10, 12, 15 million listeners a week, didn't he? On every day on his three hours that he had, right? Is it three hours right now? I think yes. when he was, it was on like the 12 air, to three, yeah. right up to the last minute, this guy was broadcasting. 
and he's got a huge audience. And now there's a, it's like your number one TV show just went off the air. Seinfeld, ER, MASH, it's gone. It's off the air and you've got a big hole to fill in drive time. So there's going to be a big, huge battle royale to fill that space, isn't there? Yeah. And I don't know whether, you know, people will fill it. In other words, is this a, is, is radio the medium that people go to now, or do they go to television? Do they go to the cable news networks and to streaming services? He had 15 million viewers a day. Yeah. Radio, radio still reaches a ton of people every day, especially talk radio. Uh, there's a little bit, but even music in diners and public places and other stuff and, and people, when they commute, they reach a lot of people on radio. And now of course you can hear these radio talk shows while you're jogging or whatever on your phone or on a podcast version, but no radio reaches a ton of people. We've done the numbers before. I don't have them right off the top of my head, but radio reaches a big chunk of America every single day. It's still a very good medium in terms of advertising. You get a lot of trapped people in their cars. You get people in a diner, you get people in restaurants and stores and malls, and they're hearing radio music all the time. So it's it's still a big audience. I mean, he had 50 million people listening a couple of weeks ago. So that's clearly an audience there ready to be served. So there's going to be a lot of person like daytime with Oprah leaves. There's going to be a lot of people filling that gap, like Judge Judy. <laughs> there's going to yeah. be somebody ready to fill that gap. Judge Judy's going off the air. She's going to go to a streamer. That leaves the space in daytime syndication. Her show will keep rerunning, but there's room for new people in there. That's why people always launch new shows. So I'm willing to fill that gap. That's what I'm saying. If, you, if you're looking for a progressive person to make a lot of noise in daytime radio, call me. But anyway, back to his political influence. He really did radicalize the Republican Party. Uh, with Rush, Democrats weren't people you disagreed with. They were traitors. They were evil. Hillary Clinton wasn't just a liberal who wanted to raise your taxes. She was a feminazi. None of this began with him, and it won't end with him, but the assault on the Capitol, the attempted coup, the lies that he fed to his listeners around it are his legacy. He denounced advocates for the homeless. He insisted global warming was a hoax for decades, among many, many other lies. He even mocked actor Michael J. Fox for having Parkinson's, imitating and belittling the tremors that are a sign of people's struggles with the disease. He said Michael J. Fox was exaggerating them to get sympathy. Boy. Trump mocking uh, a physically challenged reporter from the New York Times. He's just following Rush. When gay men were dying of AIDS, Rush Limbaugh laughingly listed the famous ones on the air and played songs mocking them, like Dionne Warwick's I'll Never Love This Way Again. When a Georgetown law student testified in support of requiring health care providers to include female contraception in their coverage, he called the young woman a slut and a prostitute. He actually got some blowback on that. And he, yeah, he didn't did really apologize. apologize. No, he didn't apologize. He said, I was joking. I was joking. What yes, he, that is true. All he that ever is, yeah. did, all he, he never said he was wrong because he famously said, I never make mistakes. <laughs> That's sort of his shtick, but he stuck to it and never changed his mind. And he said, well, I was joking. You know, I meant to joke and people didn't get the humor. I feel bad about that, but I was just joking. That was all he ever really said. Most recently, he insisted COVID-19 was no big deal, no more serious than the common cold. Now we have 500,000 Americans dead. He never changed his mind or apologize. It does leave a big, huge hole in radio. He was in the fifth year of an eight-year deal valued at $400 million. That's Judge Judy-level money. You can't talk about politics or radio in the last 30 years without talking about Rush Limbaugh. And he can thank Ronald Reagan for his career. Why is that? Well, didn't Reagan give him his his first opportunity? The Fairness Doctrine in 1987. uh, When Ronald Reagan repealed the Fairness Doctrine, Rush said it was like being unshackled. Media outlets were no longer required to include responses for controversial opinions. So he was like, great, I can say whatever I want. I don't have to waste time bringing in somebody else on the air to give their point of view. Who needs that? So yeah, well, and that actually led to the rise of cable news, you know, the, yeah. the Fox News whole mantra, which and, and MSNBC, know, he, yeah, it can be MSN, done responsibly, correct. yeah, yeah. Um, that said, you know, there a lot of people uh, fault the fairness doctrine for various things. They say, look, we do need something, maybe not the fairness doctrine. Mm-hmm. And today, I think there's probably a legal argument that. It's complicated, but that, you know, there are so many ways of gathering news and information that you can argue, well, heck, if you want your information, you can get it easily. It doesn't all, it's not three networks with a lot of power. That's true. However, when the information going out to the public is demonstrably wrong and damning and keeping people from, 
you know, dying, you know, because they're not getting accurate information on COVID-19, you do have a lot of countries like the UK and Canada and Germany and elsewhere saying, no, 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 you're not allowed to go on the air and literally spread lies and misinformation when you're pretending to be a news source. You can't do that. They won't let you. They took Fox News off the air. So there are other ways of doing it, though, how we see it in the U.S., Rush Limbaugh had lung cancer. He got it a year ago. We said, look, you know, that's too bad. We're glad he gets the health care. He, he can afford the best health care in the world. So that was good. Didn't want him to suffer. Sorry for any family and friends who actually knew him. But that doesn't mean when he dies, you have to pretend that what he did wasn't impactful and ugly and nasty because that's the career he had. He never showed any courtesy or respect to anybody else for 30 years. Uh, we don't need to, you know, dance on his grave, but we don't need to soft soap his record either. It was an ugly, ugly record, and it's done a lot of damage. And he started out in baseball. That's what I was looking up when you asked me that question about. Oh <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, 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 he also did radio DJs. He was like introducing Stevie Wonder yeah. and you know stuff like that. I didn't know he did baseball play by play. I know he loved football. And of course, no, no, he, tried no, he to- wasn't play by play. He was doing uh, like the media. He was like the press. You know, he was doing certain. He was with the Cardinals in like nineteen. Oh, that's that, that's true. He was working by now, not as a radio guy, right? Yeah, correct. Oh, right. And he loved football, and he tried. You know, he was on the air Monday Night Football for a hot minute, but that didn't quite. Uh, peel work well any more than dennis miller did so oh well um sorry for his family and friends not happy when anybody dies but not going to bemoan the ugly career that he right up to the end he was telling people that the election was stolen uh uh, the fascinating thing that i didn't take full credit for was some people say he didn't really change the republican party in terms of their policies he radicalized the party and made it much more violent and negative and and filled with lies and conspiracy but the one area where he really changed the Republican Party's policies was climate crisis, because for he made that a litmus test. If you didn't say the climate crisis was a joke and a lie, you weren't a real Republican. We had George W. Bush, you know, bringing wind farms to Texas. You had people making deals to say, hey, we got to deal with this and making reasonable things, looking at cap and trade and other things. And Rush Limbaugh, almost single-handedly, really made that a a, a a third rail for the Russian party. Just like you're an idiot if you try to destroy Russian social party? security. I mean, the, you mean the Republican party, <laughs> the Republican not the Russian. Party, not the Russian. I, the, right. They made it a third rail for the Republican party. And just like you don't want to touch p- social security unless you're an idiot, if you're a Republican, you could not for a second say anything like well i don't know maybe there's nothing to be lost by having more green energy you know you couldn't even say that because he would come down on you like a ton of bricks and he really radicalized the republican party in terms of the climate crisis we're going to deal with that impact for decades to come look at texas well let's yeah i was going to say let's start where we let's end where we began and that is with ted cruz saying uh you know that uh He's, you know, Ted Cruz, a climate change denier. Let's put it that way. And we know we're, and we we saw Fox News distancing themselves from Trump, but they just signed a big new contract with Tucker Carlson, their most popular host and a student of Rush in every sense of the word. Uh, He's going to have podcasts and videos and his show, even though you saw advertisers walking away from it, Fox News sees value in having him on the air and having his content in their podcast services and their streaming services, uh, Fox America, whatever that's called, that streaming service that they can sell to you directly. There's going to be a Fox lot. Nation. Fox, Fox Nation. Nation. A lot yeah. of Tucker is going to be on there and in their podcast services, and they see the value of that, even if he's not pulling in advertising dollars like he was before. So Rush lives on. And our podcast and our podcast yeah. lives on. Yeah. Okay. I was like, well, how do I transition? Yes. It is the end of our, of this week's episode. Uh, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, the Google play store. It's not the Google play store anymore. It's like Google something. I don't know what it's called now. It's like the Google podcast. They'll figure it out. Microsoft marketplace, Stitcher spot. We're even on Spotify. We're, we're helping Spotify not pay royalties for for music okay that's what we're they asked us can you make a podcast weekly so that people can listen to it and then we won't have to pay royalties and make it and long we said, yes. make it yeah, long make it four hours long we said look 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 we can really only do an hour and a half okay <laughs> so in any case subscribe to us rate and review us on any one of those podcast aggregators it does help us out when you do you can uh Find that information on ways to subscribe to us on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode. 
and ways to contact us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That is 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter at showbizsandbox is our handle. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox is where you can like our Facebook page. Unless apparently you're in Australia. Maybe you can or maybe you can't. I don't know. Maybe. We didn't even touch on that this week. We probably should have. In any case, again, all that information is on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website, whoismgmt.com. Michael Giltz has a website where some of his coverage of the entertainment industry is aggregated. You know, every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's box office grosses are freeadvertising.com. That's really long. So, you know, maybe if you just but go to Michael Giltz, yeah. it is good advice. Yeah. Uh, MichaelGiltz.com is also another place where you can find that work. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. Play nice.